2 Kings 18, God's word says, In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asher, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him wherever he went. He prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. In the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, he took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. The king of Assyria carried the Israelites away to Assyria and put them in Hala and on the Hebor, the river of Gozon, in the cities of the Medes, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant. Even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, they neither listened nor obeyed. In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, three hundred talents of silver and thirty talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, the Rab Saris, and the Rab Shekah, with a great army from Lachish to king Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. When they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway to the washer's field. And when they called for the king, there came out to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you've rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh of any man who leans on of, Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses, if you're able to, on your part to set riders on them. How, then, can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, 
Is it without the Lord that I've come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, Go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah and Shebna and Joah, said to the Rabshakeh, Please, speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people around the wall. But the Rabshakeh said to them, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall, who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me, and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, and each one of you his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water from his own cistern. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his hand land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Hena, and Ivah? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? But the people were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's command was, Do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the quarter, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rab Shekah. Trust is something we all use implicitly every single day. To get here, all of us drove on roads with bridges. Thus, you trusted some engineer who years ago made calculations for the span of that distance and how much weight would be needed, how much concrete and steel must be up there so that your car would not go falling through. You trusted the person who mixed the concrete and those who poured it that they actually did it according to how they should. You trusted the person who delivered the iron ore, the person who smelted it and put it into I-beams, and then those who attached it, that they did all of those things correctly. On top of that, you trusted TextDot, that they would inspect our bridges and make improvements, as they've been doing the last couple of months around here. And yet, though 99.9 for lots of going on percent of the time we're correct on our trust, sometimes that trust is unfounded. This year in Pittsburgh, a bridge collapsed, sending a bus and a car falling 150 feet. Some of you may remember back in 2007, traffic was crawling across downtown Minneapolis when a part of the bridge across the Mississippi River collapsed. 111 cars plummeted into the river, leading to 13 deaths and 145 injuries. Not even a mile from here, our Bridges have been closed as a truck dropped machinery and had a hole big enough that if a car went through at the wrong time, would have probably plunged to serious injuries, if not death. So on what do you rest your trust of driving 
on bridges. And some of you are probably Googling now how to get home with no bridges. But that's not removing trust. That's just switching it. Because to ride in your car, you're trusting that every safety component in the vehicle, whether that be brakes, door latches, seat belts, air safety bags, were made by people who didn't cut corners. That they weren't sitting in their shift and go, eh, this brake line looks a little bad, but you know, I'm going to fill out that report. I'm going to have to go, do, you know what, I'm just going to put it on. It'll probably be fine. But if they did do that, your brake line might bust on the way home, lose pressure in your brakes, and you might not be able to stop. If you're not the driver, then you're trusting the driver that they know the rules and they're going to follow them, and the other people driving that they are in control of their faculties and that they are going to follow the rules. You're trusting some engineer and some electrician that then wait, that when they wired and set up the lights, they didn't make a mistake so that green happened in two different directions and you're T-boned. You're trusting implicitly thousands of people when you get in your car and you drive from point A to point B. And it's impossible not to live a life of trust. You could say, okay, I'm leaving all. I'm going to go be a hermit. But you're going to have to build some structure and you're going to trust that the materials you used are going to last. You're eventually going to eat some food and you're going to trust that whatever book you read or whatever you looked into to say this is not poisonous was telling you the truth. We are all people of trust. So on what do you rest your trust? And that is the issue before us here, 2 Kings 18. And really in this passage, we are given first three sketches of trust and doubt in the first 18 verses. We're given people who trust the Lord and we're given people who doubt the Lord and what happens. And then in the rest of the chapter, the second half, verses 19 through 36, we see challenges to Israel's, or in this case, Judah's trust. But the chapter begins, the first section, sketches of trust and doubt, with being told of the reign of King Hezekiah. And he is a very important king, and he'll be given three chapters detailing his reign. And we're told that he was unlike any other king. He was better than them because he was like the King David. If you've been with us as we've gone through the books of Kings, you'll know that often the kings of Judah, it would say, they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and then it would say, but they didn't remove the high places. Well, Hezekiah is better than all of them because it tells us not only did he do what was right in the Lord's eyes, but he did remove the high places. Not only that, he went after the Asherah poles and cut them down. He even destroyed the serpent that Moses made in Numbers 21. Now, Moses didn't do anything wrong. If you go to Numbers 21, you'll read that Israel was rebelling against the Lord. They were grumbling, and so God sent serpents to discipline them. And if they did not get help, they died. And yet God, in his grace, had Moses craft a serpent, put it on a pole, and lift it up. And if the people who were bitten would just look to the pole, look on the serpent, they would be healed. And yet, tragically, the Israelites took this image, which God gave them to bring deliverance, and made that the object of worship, rather than the God who gave the object so that they might be delivered through him. So Hezekiah does what we should always do when we take any creation and make it as important as the creator when we worship it, we should remove it. And so Hezekiah gets rid of it. So Hezekiah is faithful in removing false worship. But not only that, 
he then also is faithful to cling to the Lord his God. It tells us, verse 6, he kept all the commandments that Moses gave them. Now, we shouldn't read any of this as though he was perfect. Of course, he's going to sin. And we'll see some mistakes he made this morning. But the overarching picture of his reign is one of godliness, of being a king better than anyone since King David and better than those after. And in this, as he's trusting the Lord, we read in verse 7 that the Lord was with him. So he begins to have military victories and he does what a king should do. Look, we're going to trust the Lord. So you know what? I no longer need to send tribute to Assyria. Assyria, we're done. We're rebelling against you. So we're given this first sketch of Hezekiah, a man who trusted the Lord, and we see that it is going well with his life. But then the story pauses, so to speak. Like a movie, you're being shown a scene, and then it pauses and it fades, and they make you show by the way they depict it that they're going back in time to show you an event to understand what's happening today. Well, here in verses 9 through 12, it goes back in time, actually only one chapter, but nonetheless, it goes back in time to show, well, what happened when Israel rebelled against Assyria? Well, when Israel rebelled against Assyria, Assyria came down, they set a siege, and after three years, they defeated them, and they were taken into exile. But it doesn't leave us wondering why did this happen, It tells us in verse 12, this happened because they did not obey the voice of their Lord, their God, but transgressed his covenant, even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. They neither listened nor obeyed. So we've had this sketch of Hezekiah, a man faithful to God, trusting God, and things are going well. We have the second sketch of Israel did not trust the Lord, was not faithful, and they are punished. So next, we're given a third skirt sketch for Assyria responds to Hezekiah's rebellion by invading Judah. Not only does Assyria invade the land, we read in verses 13 and on, but they also took fortified cities. But then we see Hezekiah begin to waver, and he has some doubt. Earlier we had read for a second Chronicles 32 that talked about how when this happened, Hezekiah strengthened the walls, built towers, made weapons, all things that people of God should do. He also said, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. For there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. And we think, wonderful. Even in the midst of this massively intimidating and ruthless army, Hezekiah stands firm. Yet then we read 2 Kings 18, verse 14. Where there, we're told, And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Wait. What's going on? I thought Hezekiah was this perfect king who always did what was right. Well, no, Hezekiah was a sinner too. And in this, he wavers. He says, basically, I don't think the Lord's going to pull through. I'm going to have to take care of this in my own strength. I know what to do. A bribe. That always gets these kings out of here. And so he asks how much. He gets the money and he sends it. 
Well, what is going on? How could Hezekiah be David-like, be better than any king before and after, and now resort to bribing enemies? Well, what's going on is Hezekiah is a person like all of us. And godly people, even people who trust the Lord, sometimes waver, stumble, and fall. Perhaps no greater example of this in Scripture is the Apostle Peter. He is there with boldness saying, Jesus, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay, so you'd think if you hold this affirmation, everything Jesus says, you would say, wonderful. And not a minute later, he's rebuking Jesus for saying, I need to go to the cross. How can he say these things back and forth? He will be the Peter who will say to Jesus, though everyone will leave, I will stand by. And then he does it. When they come for Jesus, he grabs a sword and he's going. And yet, that same night, he'll flee. And then when he circles back, he'll deny Jesus three times. This is the same Peter who had the vision of the sheet coming down from heaven and being told by God, the Gentiles can now receive the gospel and going and seeing Cornelius and other Gentiles receiving the spirit and him being faithful in the Jerusalem council in Acts 15 to say all people can come to Christ. But then we read in Galatians that he distances himself from the Gentiles out of fear of other believing Jews. Well, this is Peter. How can Peter do this? Well, because Peter is like Hezekiah and he's like us. That sometimes we stumble, we waver, and we fall. And thus, there's a warning. Anyone who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. And yet there's also an encouragement for like Hezekiah and like Peter, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And yet there's a sad irony in this, because when Hezekiah broke his trust, when he said, you know what, Lord, I don't think you're going to do this. I'm going to have to bribe. What happened? Well, Sennacherib said, thanks. He pocketed the money and then he still sent troops anyways. He didn't say, I'm leaving. He just said, huh, well, thanks for robbing all the gold off your temple. I was going to take a lot of work. You've done that for us and now we're still going to come conquer you. But before we move on, we need to answer that question that I know is in the back of some of your minds. Because it was in the back of my mind as I was reading this this week. Well, how can Judah lose fortified cities if Hezekiah trusts in God? If Hezekiah rules so justly and righteously, shouldn't he only have victories and successes? Well, let's note two things, one of which we'll discuss more next week. and That is, in this world, none of us is alone. God is not just interacting with Jeremy or Abigail or Jerry. He's acting with all of us. And sometimes what's happening to one of us affects others. And in Isaiah 7-9, through 9, God gave prophecies to Hezekiah's father Ahaz that are still being fulfilled in the life of Hezekiah. But second though, we must remember that the Bible never presents trust in God as the antidote to remove us from all suffering in this life. In fact, the Bible tells us the exact opposite Jesus told us in John 16, in this world, you will have tribulation. He didn't say, if you become my disciple, it's easy road. The rest of the way till you slide into glory. 
said, in this world you have tribulation. But he didn't end there, for he continued, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Yes, Jesus is the cure for all suffering. One day all pain, sickness, and death will be gone. Yet that will be when he returns. Thus, Paul tells us, 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Or it says in Romans 8, 16-17, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. And then it adds this phrase, Provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Thus, trusting God and living a life that honors Him does not mean that everything goes the way you think it should here and now. During World War II, an army chaplain wrote an article entitled, Some Pray and Die. The chaplain writes, Is there such a thing as getting the breaks in prayer? What about the fellows who pray regularly but get killed regularly? I wish people would stop writing about the soldiers who pray and have their answers prayed by not getting killed. Why do all the other soldiers seem to get the wrong answer? What I want to know is this. What sort of an extra special, super-powered prayer is needed to make everything turn out the way you want it? That sounds facetious, almost irreverent. But I'm serious. I really want to know. I'm an army chaplain, and I could use some special prayers with my men, and heaven knows we need them badly at times. Because the fact is, there are always more men who pray to come back than there are men who get back. Quite a lot more. What's the deciding factor? The thing for all of us to remember is this. Someone else does the answering. What you have in mind may not be what God has in mind. If you ask Him for something, you must be willing to take what He gives. When I talk to soldiers about prayer, I try to tell them that they must be adults. Only children demand a happy ending to every story. How old must we be before we begin to realize that even prayer can't get us everything we want unless the thing we want is right for us to have? Who gets the breaks in prayer? Nobody. There is no such thing. We get what God in His infinite love and foreknowledge sees fit to give. That's not always the same as getting what we want, but it ought to be. God does not promise to make everything better now, but He does eventually. More than that, He promises to be with us every step of the way. Thus, you might pray for cancer to be gone a hundred times, a thousand times, and you're living the best you can. You're seeking to honor God, and the next report is that the cancer grew. It didn't shrink. You might be faithful in raising your children, and still some of them wander from the faith. You might fight for sexual purity and still never get married or never even have a great marriage. This doesn't mean you're sinning or that you're failing or God is screwed up. If our service to God and our prayers to God are merely a ploy so that He gives us what we want, then we've turned God from being our Savior into being our servant. God is not our genie. He's not our butler to give us our wishes. He's not our rabbit's foot or our good luck charm to ward off what we don't want. God is the creator, 
sustainer and savior who graciously welcomes us to serve him. His answers may not always be what we want now, but they will always be what is best for our good and his glory. What we've seen here in our first 18 verses, that the Lord should be trusted, but when Hezekiah trusts the Assyrian king, he finds out he can't be trusted. But now, not only that, the Assyrians send ambassadors to call Judah to stop trusting in the Lord. That's the second section, challenging their trust, verses 19 through 35. And so these group of Assyrian ambassadors come, and there's mainly one who speaks, someone called the Rab Shekah, or you might have different titles as it's translated in your versions. And he begins by asking a question of Hezekiah. He's speaking for the king of Assyria, so he'll say king of Assyria, and he'll refer to the person he's talking to, although it's a group, as King Hezekiah. And he wants to challenge them on several things. But it's interesting, a lot of what he says is very close to the truth. It's as though the Assyrian intelligence community has done their homework, and perhaps even has some inside Judean leaders who tell them the conversation's happening. And the speech begins challenging Hezekiah on what is he resting this trust of his. And he raises five potential options. First, verse 20. Do you think words are going to win a war? Do, do they have any power? Is that what you're trusting in? Are human words omnipotent? Now, many of you have watched the movie Braveheart. And after William Wallace's rousing speech to his men... You just about want to jump through the TV yourself, put blue paint on, and go tackle some of those English people. But what if he'd given that speech and the camera was on him, and then it turned to the soldiers, and the soldiers were all two-year-olds picking their nose and digging in the dirt? Would the words have really done anything? No. And that's what the people of Assyria say. What are words? words do the words give you power? Yeah, you could say all you want, Hezekiah. That's not going to do anything. Are you trusting on human words? Or is Hezekiah trusting in God's words? Second, Assyrians raise the issue of, well, what about Egypt? Is that who you're trusting in? Now, we don't have any sure signs that Hezekiah was doing this, but you could read Isaiah 30, where Isaiah the prophet rebukes leaders of Israel, perhaps even Hezekiah, for going and trusting in Egypt. And whether that's the case or not, whatever's going on, he's saying, look, if you're trusting in Egypt, that's like going down to the riverbank, and getting one of those reeds and trying to use that as a walking staff. That thing's ridiculous. It's going to crack. It has no weight. And when it cracks, what's going to happen? Well, that sharp end is going to go right into your finger, right into your hand. You shouldn't be trusting in Egypt. Well, third, he moves to, are you trusting in Yahweh? Well, that's kind of ridiculous. Come on, people, listen. Don't you know that Yahweh had places to worship all throughout and Hezekiah went throughout the land and destroyed them all? I mean, isn't Yahweh pretty mad that you got rid of all these places of worship? And this is where he's getting things right and wrong. It's like a lot of propaganda or a lot of Satan's attacks. It's a mixture of both truth and error. It's true. Hezekiah did go through and get rid of these places. Yet, that's what God declared he wanted. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Deuteronomy 12 Yahweh said he wanted to be worshipped in one place. Thus, the Rabshakeh has the right information, but he's wrongly understanding it. He's barking up the wrong theological tree. Well, fourth, 
he starts to taunt their military, giving them a mock wager. Hey, how about, I got a deal for you. We'll give you 2,000 horses. Do you even have that many men to put on them? Come on, y'all don't even have a military. And yet, even if they did have them, the Rapshikah doesn't know Psalm 20, verse 7, which says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Or maybe the Rapshikah does know this, for he ends his first rounds of attack with another theological attack, his fifth one, his fifth attack. He now claims, verse 25, Well, yes, you're trusting in Yahweh, but you know why I'm here? Actually, Yahweh spoke to me. Didn't you know that? He told me to come. That's why I'm here. So if you want to trust the Lord, you should really just go ahead and surrender because this is what God wants. Now, it's true. You could read in 2 Kings 17, chapter before this, or we read in chapter 18, verse 12. The Lord sent Assyria to destroy Israel. But there's no indication that he sent them to destroy Judah. And so he's just saying these words. But more and more, we have to ask ourselves, are the words we're hearing actually coming from the person who it's said to be coming from or not? Is this a guise, a false teacher, a false prophet? Some of you may have seen this last year videos of Tom Cruise doing funny things, playing golf, acting weird. And then at the end, you're told this actually wasn't Tom Cruise. It was a fake video that looked just like him. It was all funny, not that serious, except you also may know that in the war in Ukraine this year, right at an important point, the Russians released a video of President Zelensky calling all the Ukrainians to lay down their arms and to surrender to the Russians. And yet, it was a fake video. And these fake videos are getting better and better so that you could look and go, yeah, I've seen Tom Cruise, that's him right there. And it's actually not Tom Cruise. Can we even trust anymore what we see with our eyes? Well, no, we're going to have to start trusting some computer engineer who can hack in and look in and go look at the code and go, oh, actually, that is or it isn't them. But this is really nothing new for Christians. We have known throughout time that there are people who are going to say, we are speaking for this person, speaking for the Lord, when they're not. Deuteronomy 13 and 18 warn Israel how to know if a prophet is really from God. Jesus warned, Matthew 7, 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You know, people don't normally come into the Christian community and say, Hey, I got this new horrible heresy, and it's going to really mess up Christianity. So why don't all of y'all believe this? We all go, Leave. If you want to hear what we have to say, that's great. But don't bring in things that are going to ruin our church. Well, no, they don't do that. They look like any other Christian. They say a lot of right things, except one little thing they adjust. But it's historical. You know, this has been said throughout time, so maybe we should believe it too. And we have had to check, is this true? That's why 1 John 4.1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they're from God. Thus we must test the content of what we're taught and be like the Bereans who are praised in Acts 17.11, for they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They didn't check 
Well, how does this make me feel? Or how does this fit with the times? They checked it by the only completely true, inerrant, and inspired word of God, the scriptures. And this is what Judah could have done because what is the Rabshakeh saying? He's saying, God didn't want you to destroy all these other places of worship. Well, they know God's word says, worship only at the temple. Okay, we're done with you. End of story. You're clearly contradicting God's word, so you're not speaking for God. Whether they did that or not, we're not told, though they don't speak back. But just as the king of Assyria had these ambassadors speaking to Israel, to Judah, more correctly, Hezekiah has ambassadors who listen and they reply and they say, whoa, 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 um, could you stop really saying all this in Hebrew because all these other men are hearing this? Why don't we talk in Aramaic? You know, international diplomacy, we could talk in that language. And he goes, no. Did I come here just to warn some ambassadors? No, what about those men up there who are doomed to have to eat and drink their own feces? And so he then says, look, I'm going to talk to them. And he speaks louder to the men on the wall. And he wants to basically scare them into desertion. So he directly attacks Hezekiah four times. You may have noticed that verses 29 through 32, each time there's a direct statement, do not trust, believe, listen to, and then Hezekiah. Hezekiah can't deliver them, but Assyria can. It begins in verse 29 where he first declares, in the name of the great king of Assyria, they should not trust in Hezekiah. I mean, come on, really, guys? Do you think Hezekiah, he's going to be your victory? He goes on, the second attack. They shouldn't trust Hezekiah's words that somehow Yahweh will save them and keep them from Assyria. And he's basically saying, look, Hezekiah's manipulating y'all spiritually. Yeah, he's using all this religious lingo. I'm wanting you to think God's going to save us. But is that really going to happen? Do they really think Yahweh will save them? In fact, third, you know what he says, verse 31, if you'll listen to me now, if you'll just come off the walls, if you'll just come make peace, your life's going to be great. If you'll surrender, you can keep drinking from your own vines. You can keep having your own cisterns. You know, this is similar to what God had promised in Deuteronomy. And it sure sounds a lot better than what they were just promised. They were going to be eating and drinking if they stayed and fought. Come on, guys! Dessert, life's going to be great for you. Whatever they were thinking, Rab Shakah continues by giving his fourth direct challenge to trusting Hezekiah, and it's like the second. They shouldn't buy Hezekiah's words to trust Yahweh. Now, let's just pause. Could there be any more satanic attack than don't trust God, trust me? You know, this is the garden. Oh, did God really say, listen to my interpretation of reality. But the Rabshakeh seems blatantly oblivious to the fact that God is not like any other God because what he's thinking was, well, look, we've gone and defeated all these other city-states and did their gods do anything? Well, pff, no. So yours is just like all the others. And so he starts labeling off all these city-states they've defeated. Well, what about Hamad? What about Arpad? What about Safarvim? What about Hena? What about Eva? Now, these are not random places. If you go back to 2 Kings 17 and look at the nations that were brought in after Israel was removed, several of them are these people. So these are now Judah's neighbors. They probably would have heard as they interacted in markets, yeah, we were defeated by Assyria and we've been sent back to live here. And yeah, it's horrible. We wish we could go back, but we'll get killed. And then he tops it off 
Well, what about Samaria? What about them? Now, for Hezekiah and the men of the wall, this is not ancient history. This was eight years before. This was probably cousins, relatives that they've known who are now in exile. Did Yahweh save the Israelites in Samaria? And if, like the Rabshakeh thinks, that God's power is only related to the size of the people that follow, then Judah's doomed. All of those other places were bigger. And yet, they still lost. But God's power is the same whether he has zero followers or if every single person trusts him. God is completely unlike us. We are dependent beings. We depend on basic things. We need water, food, air. God needs nothing. Acts 17, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And so the chapter ends with them being silent in reporting this to Hezekiah. But the issue before Hezekiah, before the men on the wall, and before today is the same, on what do you rest your trust for deliverance? Now obviously we're not sitting on walls with massive armies surrounding us, cutting off our supplies. Yet it is appointed for everyone once to die, and then the judgment. On what do you rest your trust that God will not condemn you, but rather allow you into heaven? God's holy and perfect character demands absolute sinlessness, absolute perfection. You might say, but that's impossible. No one can be perfect. No one can do that. And do the Israelites sitting on the wall in Jerusalem? It equally looked impossible. There is no way those thousands of soldiers can be defeated by this little ragtag bunch behind this wall. Their hope and our hope for deliverance must be completely on God. The only answer for why God, the only legitimate answer for why God should allow you into heaven is God must get you there. It must be by Christ alone that you're welcome in. By faith alone that you're welcome. By God's grace alone. That you say, I have no other argument. I have no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. That's what I'm resting my trust in. Jesus died to restore us to God. And if we can trust him with the ultimate restoration for eternity, then it gives us confidence to trust him each day. To see this, please turn to Romans chapter 8 and we'll end by looking at a few verses there. Romans 8, 31 through 39. Romans 8, 31 through 39, because if you can trust God with your eternal security, then you can trust Him when your relationships are falling apart. You can trust Him with your health. You can trust Him with secrets that you hope no one else will find out about. You can trust Him with whatever fear it is that seems to be crippling us. Well, how do we know? 
Well, let's read Romans 8, beginning in verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? His point is, look, if God loves you enough to send his one and only son to die for you, he's not going to drop the ball on everything after that. So he continues. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Even now, Jesus prays for you. Sometimes people say, oh, pastor, we pray for me for this. I'm glad to pray for you. But you have a better prayer warrior on your side. Infinitely better. The Son of God who lived and died and rose again for you is interceding for you. But notice what we'll read next. That doesn't mean we'll be kept from trial, but rather that we will know His love in the midst of the trials. I say that because verse 35 continues, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In other words, you're going to have all these things. Even as Jesus is interceding for you, his prayers aren't failing when you're going through all these trials. He's not failing. But notice what it says, verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The most important thing is secured. He will be with you in and through any trial or tribulation. So on what do you rest your trust our hope in God is more sure than any bridge you're going to have to drive across as you go back home. It's more sure than anything you might trust, for it is rooted and grounded in Jesus of Nazareth, who lived and died and rose again. May we all not only be people who trust in that, but as this passage puts before us, may we be like Hezekiah, calling other people, trust in the Lord, not like the rapture cop. You're going to trust in God? What is that? He can't do anything. May you see that the only firm foundation to put your trust is in God alone. Let's pray. Oh Lord, may we be people who are not just hearers of your word, or not just speakers of your word, but doers. Lord, we all have fears. We all have things that weigh our hearts down. We all have things that we cry out to you daily for wanting to see change. Lord, we trust you with those. We do want to see change. We want to see improvement, but Lord, we rest in you, in your hand, knowing that you'll be with us whatever answer you give to those prayers. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.